we develop a friendship. C.S. Lewis says this, and I actually like this, that's why we're starting out with this. A friendship typically starts this way, according to C.S. Lewis. What? You two? I thought I was the only one. There's some sort of connection between you and another person. Maybe it's an affinity, maybe it's an experience, maybe you went on vacation at the same place, or you like the same foods, or you don't like the same movies, but there's a connection that forms. And from that connection develops friendship. And there's such strength and there's such beauty in a good friendship. However, study after study reveals that most of us find friendships hard to make. Hard to keep. So how many of us can identify with a friendship that, that David had with Jonathan? Jonathan, now I want you to listen to this. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. David felt that same love. He expressed it when Jonathan died, they held a funeral, and David wrote a song. He was a musician, and he wrote this song, and here's some of the lyrics. They don't kind of sound like songs that we're used to, but nonetheless, here's one of the lyrics. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. You know that some have misconstrued that as being homosexual love? It's not that. It's so rare that, that you don't recognize it as deep, soul-binding friendship. But for David and Jonathan, they were friends. And no life for David could ever have been in that, not in that society, could ever feel that gaping hole that David felt in his soul when his friend Jonathan died. You see, friendship was important to David. And he taught it to his son Solomon. And Solomon's going to teach friendship to us today. So let's keep in mind this. A little bit of background to the Old Testament Israel. The most common word for friend in the Old Testament can also be translated neighbor. Now you want to probably write that down. That's something you need to know when you're reading about neighbor over and over and over in friend. They're synonymous. They're the same word. Friends were synonymous with neighbors, now I can hear this, the people that you live life with. In fact, in fact, look at verse 10 for a moment. We're going to get there and unpack it in a moment, but you see this relationship. Look what it says. Do not forsake your friend. I keep following it. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So friends and neighbors were thought to be the same thing. You live life with people that were in your social groupings. So how do we develop, how do we develop deep, lasting, helpful friendships with those with whom we live? Well, wisdom wants to teach us. You remember the definition for wisdom? Wisdom is skillful living. It's God's gift to teach us how to live skillfully with God and people. So wisdom is going to teach us the skill to make great Friendships, and this is the passage that we're going to learn. Let's look at the verse, the first point that we're going to see today. Wise friends lovingly 
speak the truth. Look at verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So here we go. You read that word rebuke. Now, I'm not sure which translation you're working out of this, uh, today, but when you read that word rebuke, here's what it means. It's constructive criticism. So a rebuke was not something that you do when you're angry and you don't like the person and you want to tear them to pieces. That's not what this word means. It's when you love somebody and you want to bring constructive, build them up, edify them, criticism. So how do you, and how we respond to that rebuke, to that constructive criticism, listen, it will reveal whether you're a wise person or a foolish person. Whoever loves discipline, Proverbs 12 says, loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, you gotta see what it says, is stupid. No, we're not allowed to say that word in our family. Even my older kids, we just don't let anybody say that word. The Bible rarely uses it to capture what a fool is. And if you don't want reproof, if you don't want constructive criticism, and when somebody tries to give that to you, and you get defensive, and you get angry, and you distance, and you shut down, the Bible says you're stupid. The Bible says I'm stupid. And parents go back to verse 5 for that hidden love. You know, for us to love our children, but we don't speak up with matters of correction because we're afraid of their responses, then we're captured by that phrase, hidden love. That's what it means. We'll gain new friendship in the short term, <laughs> but in the long term, you're going to lose your kids. You know, David was a man after God's own heart. This is extraordinary, what I'm about to show you. I mean, God called him a man after his own heart. He was extraordinary. He was a warrior musician. They don't usually go together. No offense to our musicians. But they don't normally go together. David had it all. He was a warrior. He was a musician. He was a singer. He was a lover. He had it all. He was a best friend. And even though he was a man after God's own heart, the Bible says of him, with his son Adoniah, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6. His son Adoniah, David's about to die. He is so old. And Adoniah, his child, says, I'm not going to wait any longer until my father is dead. I'm going to grab the throne now before anybody else can get it. Which was an absolute terrible thing to do. It broke all cultural codes in ancient Israel. And the Bible says, verse 6, his father, that's David, had never at any time displeased Adoniah by asking, Why have you done thus and so? So David parented with hidden love. He would not call out his children's faults. He would not give his kids a view to their hearts because he didn't want to displease them. You know what that word displeased means? If I were you, I'd write it down. It means to painfully shape something. In Job, in chapter 10, verse 48, the same exact word describes God's creating of human beings. God shaped. He shaped Adam out of dust, out of clay, out of dirt. Listen, when you give an open rebuke, 
When you give constructive criticism, what you're doing, even though it may hurt your friend or your child, it is shaping them, even though it's painful, it is shaping them to God's image and God's glory. If David would have given that shaping, constructive criticism to his son, it would have shaped his heart, rather than allow Adonai's sin to find its full expression unhindered. Listen, this is what a friend does. A true friend will put his or her finger on your faults without rubbing them in. They put the finger on your faults without rubbing them in. Again, Sand from Peacemaking Ministries, I'm going to teach you a little uh, formula that he has taught me through his books and his material. It's really quite brilliant and it's deceptively simple. He's developed an easy way to categorize people's responses when something happens that could lead to conflict. He says some people are, number one, peace breakers. They break peace. You know what a peace breaker is? They're loud, angry, condemning people. You might be married to one. You might have one as a parent. You might have one as a child. You might be living next to one or working next to one. But peace breakers condemn people who find a way to make, they find a way to make sure the other person is utterly convinced that it's always their fault and never their own. It's everybody else's fault and not their own. That's a peace breaker. And those types of friends, if you've ever had a peace breaking friend, those types of friends seem to gain some sort of pleasure from inflicting the wounds. But look at verse 6. And you see peace fakers. First I showed you peace breakers. And now you can see peace fakers. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy, verse 6. That's flattery. Flattery never helps anyone. Listen, you and I, we've got to learn to discipline our lips and not offer flattery. It's utterly unhelpful. It's deceptive. It's what Judas did with Jesus. It's a Judas kiss and a friendship. Judas kisses only to see that's a peace faker. And they, don't, and, and they both prove the person can't be trusted. But wisdom will teach us to be skillful friends who know how to be peacemakers. Not peace breakers, not peace fakers, but peacemakers. Look at verse 5. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's a peacemaker who will not hide their love, who will bring constructive criticism when it is necessary. And the truth might hurt, but it's never going to harm. Do you get the distinction with that? The truth might hurt, but it will never harm. And a wise friend doesn't fear that correction, but actually, listen, they actually hope for this correction, because how else are you going to improve? How else can you grow? How else can you see the blind areas if somebody who's your friend won't put their finger on it and lovingly and graciously and truthfully show you? See, a wise friend will carefully correct and only in love, and their tongue is a healing balm, and their friendship is a tool of shaping, so that we can become a clearer picture of Jesus Christ. That is the goal, by the way. 
The goal is that we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. That I speak like Jesus, and I think like Jesus, and I do things like Jesus wants me to do, and the emotions that flood my heart are the emotions that Jesus had. You see, we're trying to be conformed into the image of Christ, and a wise friend is part of that painful at times shaping process. But there's more. Wise friends maintain balance. Wise friends maintain balance. Sometimes in Proverbs, and if you've read through it, you'll understand what I'm saying. Sometimes uh, it, a verse might seem to just be randomly and haphazardly thrown into a passage. For instance, you go from wise friends telling the truth in verses 5 and 6, and now look at verses 7 and 8. It seems like it's an entirely new topic. And then in verse 9, it returns to friendship again. I mean, what was Solomon doing when he arranged this? Was he just like pulling all of his proverbs off the shelf and just slamming them into the book? Well, Ecclesiastes says this, and he didn't know this. If you're going to understand verses 7 and 8, Ecclesiastes says this, Besides being wise, the preacher, that Solomon, he also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging Many Proverbs with great care. Listen, there is nothing out of order to Proverbs. Nothing. And what might seem at first glance, a couple of verses that puzzle us, why are they here? Did they get inserted in the wrong place? Listen, Solomon's got a plan for these verses. So we should view 7 and 8 in the context of friendship. Here's verse 7. One is full loaves honey. But to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Think of that word full. You've all been full in a meal. Full means you can't eat another bite. It means that you're satisfied. It means that if you're that full, even dessert's not going to appeal to you. And in the context of a friendship, now listen, you got to hear this. People can have a social calendar so full of activity that an appeal from someone for friendship can be spurned. I don't have time or the interest. Listen, this is one of the dilemmas of our social media, social engine era. Facebook and Twitter. I mean, you can have hundreds and thousands of friends on Facebook and followers on Twitter. And they can create the illusion that you've got a lot of healthy friendships. The Bible says, Proverbs 18, a man of many companions may come to ruin. Listen, that's an illusion. And that same illusion can come about by a life of busyness, even within the church. When we are so frenetically busy, even in the church, doing ministry after ministry, it can fill our souls so that we don't want nor need to get with people and develop friendships. And when that relational fullness comes into the church, what can develop is a friendly church, but not a relational church. People might come in and they say, you know what, I found Cornerstone friendly, but I couldn't make friends there. How ironic, isn't it? That I'm working at developing this sermon this week and I get a phone call late at night from a friend that I've known for years, a very close friend of mine actually. Spent a lot of time with him. 
Pastor Tim, there's no easy way to tell you this, but my family and I were going to leave the church. I mean, I was stunned. This is a personal friend of mine. I said, why? Is there anything I've done? Is there anything somebody's done in our church that is that is compelling you to feel like you need to leave your church or family? No, you know what, Pastor Tim, your church, when you start to use those kind of pronouns, and your church, your church is just can't, I can't make friends there. Well, that bothers me. That really bothers me. What even bothers me more is that I know this family so well, and we made nothing but appeals, and a lot of people have for friendship with them. There's just some people that there's nothing you can do. And I still love him, and I pray for a blessing, and I'm going to continue to bless him and pray for him. But listen, do you find cornerstones, frankly, but difficult to find friendships in? You're, you're not alone. You do. I mean, just patting somebody on the back when they come and shaking their hand and saying, hey, I miss you, I'm glad you're here, but not seeing them again for another week and week after week after week of that. Listen, it creates a friendly feeling church where you just can't give decent friendships. And that's something that wisdom would have to correct. It's something the Bible teaches us to do better. And when you bring that relational fullness into the church, you're so frenetically busy, you're under the illusion that you don't need friends, and that friendly but not able to develop friendship church develops, well that, now you know, beginning to know at least, what Solomon means here. He says honey. Look at the word. He uses the word honey. Which elsewhere is used as a symbol to keep a balance in your life. Look at Proverbs 25. If you've got honey, eat only enough for you unless you have your fill of it and vomit it. So listen, if you've got honey... Don't overeat it, Solomon said, because it's going to lead to nausea. You've got to keep a balance. Well, how do you see the connection with honey and friendship? Well, look at the very next verse. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. So he's teaching us balance, that if you're going to have a deep, abiding friendship, then there's got to be balance to it. There's wisdom in the balance of the number of close friends that you travel through life together with. There's within the balance of how often you spend time with those close friends. If you've got a clingy, possessive friend, they're going to usually squelch the life right out of the friendship. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a friend the like of which Aristotle once wrote, quote, friendship is a single soul dwelling in two bodies? A friendship like that? You know, I ask these questions all the time when I meet with people, and I'm going to tell you the majority, if you're like my results in asking this question, the majority of you have to say no, you don't. <coughs> and yet, wisdom wants to teach us how to do that, how to develop these types of friendships. And some of you ladies, I don't know, you might be close to tears because you're longing for this kind of a friendship so deeply. And some of you men, you might be thinking, this is a sermon for the ladies. We don't need friends like that. Let me tell you what Solomon preaches to men. In Ecclesiastes, I saw, he says, a person who has no other, he has no friend, he has no son or brother, yet there's no end to his toil. He's working his life away, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, 
or who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And Solomon says, this is vanity. This is the breath on a cold morning that just dissipates and disappears. Is what the word vanity means. And an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That's a picture of a man that says, I don't need deep friendships. Third, wise friends are faithful. Wisdom wants to teach us this. There was a British publication that once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend, and thousands of entries came in. I'm going to tell you what the winning one was. You can see it on the screen. A friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. Solomon gets to this faithfulness, verse 8, look at it with me, like a bird that strays from its nest, it's a man who strays from a home, from its home. And again, it seems like it's not really talking about friendship, but remember, Solomon is carefully arranging his proverbs, so you gotta look a little bit deeper. The word home doesn't mean house. It doesn't mean house here at all. In fact, if you've got, this pains me, this pains me to tell you this. But if you've got the King James Version, it's going to translate it better than the English Standard Version. Whatever. So please, fires don't say amen. I know you want to. The word home means place. It's the place that God has put you. You see, God's got a will for you. He's got a, will, he's got a plan for your lives. Even determining the place where we live in those lives. It includes family. It includes your community more broadly. It's the place in which you live. Your jobs, your work, your neighborhoods, your schools, your church. It's the place. And the moment they... Let me explain a little bit better. Because chiefly, the church is in mind. See, when God saved you, brother and sister, He gave you a new citizenship. So that you're no longer a citizen of this world. That's why if you're walking with the Lord, you're going to feel a little bit like an intransient nature coming into your heart. In other words, you're not going to feel rooted in this earth. Because you're not a citizen of this earth anymore. He's giving you new papers. He's giving you new citizenship. He's adopted you. He's placed you into the kingdom of God, which is called the kingdom of heaven. And that new kingdom is growing. And it's finding its expression here on earth, listen, in what is called the church. You might ask me, Pastor Tim, what's the kingdom of God? I'm going to tell you, it's God's reigning and ruling dominion that finds its greatest expression in his church. And Christian, whether you like it or not, verse 8, God has placed you, he's placed me into his church. He's placed you into a local assembly of believers where we worship God together, where we love one another. And he's put you here and you've got all the rights of the kingdom of God. And you've got all, listen, the responsibility that Jesus Christ has given us. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind in Christ. And love your neighbor, your brother and sister, chiefly in the church, like yourself. 
See, God's placed us into relationship with each other for a purpose. To develop peer friendships with one another. Sometimes it's going to be for a little season of time. Sometimes it's for life. But when we desert those relationships, I hope you're hearing me, when you desert your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, well, here's Solomon, here's verse 8, you're like a bird that strays from its nest or like a man who strays from his place or his home. You want to know what the word strays means? This is really interesting. This is going to make really good sense. It almost always means to be forced to flee. It's not wander away because of ignorance or wander away of deception. It's when the predator comes and the bird takes flight and leaves the, the eggs behind and the eggs will never hatch because now the predator's got them. That's what it means to stray. It's a trial or a difficulty that comes into our lives and all of a sudden we pull away from one another. And maybe we leave the church, we leave the support system, that place that God has put us in to find growth in our faith, to find expression in our love for God and one another. And all of a sudden the purposes of God are in jeopardy of never being fulfilled in our lives. I mean, do you see your friends as being given to you by God to fulfill His purposes in your lives? And if you abandon them when difficulty comes into your life or when difficulty comes between the two of you, then you're going to forfeit God's strength for you. For, for you. Friends have to be faithful. And not pull away from one another when difficulty comes. But Solomon's going on. He's on a roll. Wise friends encourage. Wise friends encourage. I'm going to read to you what George Eliot once wrote. He said, Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person. This is a guy writing this. So, man, if you think this is just feminine, you don't understand friendship. Having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but to poison all out just as they are. Chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful hand will take and sift them and keep what is worth keeping, and then with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. It's amazing, isn't it? Let's look at how Solomon puts it in verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Wise friends encourage. And when a friend speaks it should be honest. It should be gracious. Now listen, it should be healing. And even when it's a painful rebuke, verses 5 and 6, it should end with a gladness of heart. you got the word oil in verse 9, which almost always refers to olive oil. And that was used for a variety of purposes. It was used to soothe burns and cuts and rejuvenate dry skin. And when the counsel, listen, here's what he means. When the counsel of a great, deep, abiding friendship cuts and hurts, verse 5, then the love of that friendship needs to be that healing balm, that oil that immediately heals. True friends refresh and heal their friends' hearts. You know, perfumed oils kind of seems a little odd to us. They're still used, by the way, in, in a lot of cultures today. 
And actually, there are cultures where men will eat a feast, and after the feast, part of the end of the feast, they will take these oils, and people, will, servants, will rub them into their beards, or they will rub the oil into their beard. See, I learned a lot more about beards preparing for this sermon than I ever knew. You know, there's dozens of names for this facial hair. I mean, you've got the friendly mutton chop. You've got the French pork. You've got the old Dutch. You've got the chin curtain. You've even got the anchor. And there's like about 30 more of them. And for all and any beard type, listen, there's an assortment of beard oils. I got it off the internet. Let me read to you the quote from these beard oils. They will lead to, quote, softer and more manageable whiskers that hold your shape better and smell nice. <laughs> I mean, all this time, and I've got this goatee, I've been allowing my beard hair to remain limp and smelly. <laughs> Solomon's teaching us, verse 9, friendship is like oil. It revitalizes. It strengthens. It heals. Look what he says. Perfumes. Well, perfumes in Old Testament times, they were a luxury. They were for special occasions, special celebrations. The aroma of a perfume was like an aroma of joy. It was sweet and it was comforting, but it was also an ancient deodorant. Listen, they didn't have drug stores back then. They couldn't just go get a, a stick of deodorant. They took a flask of perfume and ladies would wear it underneath their robes and they had a little stopper in it. And when they wanted to dab the perfume to deodorize them, they pull the stopper, dab with the cork around their bodies and then stop it up again. That's how they smelled nice in those ancient days. So this ancient deodorant, this perfume covered offensive smells. And it reminds us, right, here we go, friends again. It reminds us of the Council of Solomon. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This is a deep, abiding friendship, which is built on encouragement, is willing to cover offenses. You ever had a friend that's hurt you? You ever hurt your friend? Every one of us have hurt our friends. And every one of us have been hurt by friends. And when you've got wisdom that's teaching a skillful living for friendship, and you've got the understanding of Solomon that a friend, a deep abiding, redemptive, shaping into Christ's friendship, is willing to cover offenses, it brings great encouragement that says, I want to come to know you more. I want to get closer to you. And I want us to journey through this life together and know our Savior. A true friend loves at all times, willing to cover over offenses like perfume covers a stench and instead brings the pleasing aroma of comfort and joy. But finally, wise friends are available. Look at verses, look at verse 10. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Remember verse 8, strays means to be put to flight. Something bad comes into your life, and where are you going to go with it? Where do you go when a child comes into your life? Where do you go when calamity strikes your home, your place in your life? Well, Solomon's giving you wisdom. He's giving you skill for living. Here's how a deep, abiding, redemptive friendship functions. 
when that trial or that calamity comes, Solomon says, find your support, seek your support from your friends. You live life with rather than a family member who is far away. Listen, this doesn't mean that you can't call your mom and dad. This doesn't mean you can't call your sister. This doesn't mean you can't call your brother from another state when something difficult is coming into your life. But Solomon is saying this, if you want to really live in the place that God has put you, and you want to be shaped, even, even with that open rebuke, that shaping, little cutting, constructive criticism, if you want to come to be more like Jesus Christ, then you've got to start to live within friendships who live around you and know you and see you and watch you. You've got to be there for each other. You've got to help each other in their time of need. You've got to be willing to drop everything and do everything in your power to, to help, knowing that your time of need is likely going to come when you're going to need somebody to drop what they're doing and help you as well. See, normally in Israel, see, this is so different today because we are so globally spread. That's not the norm in Israel. Normally, 3,000 years ago, about when Solomon wrote this, relationships among family were to, were to be guarded. They were to be lived out closely. But what Solomon's thinking of here is a family member who moved far away. And that family member that's no longer near, they're of limited health. They didn't have phones back then. They didn't have text messaging. They didn't have the internet. He said, don't go journeying to your friend when you've got your support structure right here. That's his principle. Get your support from your good, godly, redemptive friends that you're encouraging, that you're trusting, that are faithful to you. So let wisdom teach you how to develop deep, meaningful friendships. Because Proverbs 18 says, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now I know a lot of people who was really, really good friend moved away. And they've never been able to recover. And they still call that good friend, even though that friend is so far away, and they still try to go visit them. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's wonderful. But it's put them into paralysis in their friendship. They're no longer developing what God has given them here. And they say to Pastor Tim, well, nobody will be my friend, or I try, and it just doesn't seem to click anymore. But listen, you've got to pray, and you've got to be that friend that Proverbs 27 is talking about. When you're that friend, wisdom's going to come. God's Spirit's going to bring that person into your life. Wait patiently. So do you have these kinds of friends? <coughs> wisdom would teach us how to be that kind of friend. That creates that kind of a powerful relationship. Here it is again, right? Speak the truth. With such gracious love that your friend's heart just opens up to receive it even if it hurts. Maintain a balance that allows friendship to grow in a healthy way. Don't be in your neighbor's house too often. Don't get so busy and full in life that you don't need people. Be faithful to help your friend love and serve God so that they can become more like Jesus. Prove to be a source of encouragement. Who does your friend go to when trouble and calamity comes? Hopefully it's to you because you're bringing encouragement from the Word of God and the balm of Gilead of Jesus Christ to soothe their hurt. And prove to be available when difficulty comes. Don't put it off. Be there for them. In fact, you move to 
them, don't wait for them to come to you because a lot of times we don't move when calamity comes. You go rescue them, the Bible says, and you can save that person from a whole multitude of sins. Can I encourage you to take one or two that you're seeing on the screen, one or two of these qualities? And if you lack wisdom, you lack skillful with living and in, uh, in friendship, married friendship, then ask God, James says, who will give to you generously. But don't be double-minded. In other words, don't say, here, God, I want that in my life, and then walk out of here and not do it. That's double-mindedness. You've got to be single-minded. Lord, I'm going to commit to this. And I'm going to take immediate action, James says, that you don't walk away from this and forget what it meant. Take one or two and say, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to live this out this week. I'm going to start immediately. Maybe even a phone call tonight. Or an email, or a card, or a letter, or an invitation to dinner, or a diner breakfast, or whatever. But you're going to take action tonight. You're going to be the friend that wisdom will teach you to be. And maybe what we'll see at Cornerstone is a friendly church where people can come and find deep, abiding, everlasting Friendship. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for wisdom. Thank you for Solomon's words. Father, thank you for all that you're giving us in the book of Proverbs. Thank you for teaching us. And Lord, I would confess this is a very difficult area for me as well as most of us in this room.